You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Yes, Joe. I am not Joe, obviously. My name's Jordan. I've been able to share with you guys a few times, so I'm happy to be up here again. Joe is out of town. He will be back next week, and so you can expect to see him next Sunday. So if you're disappointed that he's not here, I apologize. But I will do my best to fill his shoes, and again, he'll be back next week. Last time we met was last month, because we didn't meet last week, and we finished up a series on Job. Now we're going to transition to a new topic, which is church history. I believe this is the last topic on those bookmarks, and so soon we will be coming out with a new bookmark with a new list of topics for the following roughly six months. So you can expect to see that in the next few weeks. Um, Also, if you are new to the Mill Sunday School, there should be a piece of paper on the tables for you guys, and you can fill that out. And if you turn into the table, the first table out the back doors there, you will get a CD. It has some worship music on it and, and a message from Aaron Stearns, the head mill pastor. And so if you are new, I highly recommend you do that. You get something free. Free is nice, right? Everyone likes something free. So it's a good deal. So if you look at the skillet, there are a few notes in there. There's not much, but there's basically four topics that we'll be covering within the first 250 years of church history. Talk, we'll discuss a little bit about leadership, community, persecution, and heresies. Because we only have three weeks to cover church history, which is a daunting task for sure, the goal today is to really summarize some key elements to, be, to the beginning of the church. And so I apologize, I will not be able to cover absolutely everything. Some things will be missed, some things will be left out, but hopefully there will be a good understanding of the birth of the church and the situation the church was in during its beginning time. So, we first must understand that the church itself, the beginning of the church, is not a new religion. It wasn't birthed out of nothing. It's not something completely separate. It is not something that does not have a history. We must realize all the way back to the call of Abraham when God called Abraham and said that he will bless all nations through his seed. And that the story of Israel, the culmination of the story of Israel is in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that must be understood, that there is a history to the church. That at the beginning of the church is not a beginning of something with no history. And so first and foremost, that is clear. We must realize too, the first Christians were Jews. The first Christians were Jews. And understanding that and understanding their history makes a difference. So if you think about church structure and so forth, the idea of there's no concept of structure would not be true because during that time there were synagogues. Um, Jews were meeting in synagogues. They were meeting in a temple. They had a system set up, a worship system set up. They had prophets. They had teachers. They had priests. They had a priestly line. They had a high priest. So there was leadership structure within Judaism And then that history is a part of the first Christians and a part of their history, which is important, which is also a part of our history. And so we cannot neglect to reference that first off when we talk about the beginning of the church. Now, the start of the church, you actually, I guess, 
beginning of the church would probably be described as being on Pentecost. The time, the moment, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on all flesh. The reason why that is stated um, is because in Joel chapter 2, Jeremiah 31, and Ezekiel and other passages in the Old Testament, there's this prophecy of the new covenant. Um, there's prophecy of the Holy Spirit being poured out. And so at, at the moment where Jesus dies, is resurrected, tells his disciples, his followers, to remain in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit, because at that moment when the Holy Spirit's poured out, it is the complete fulfillment of the new covenant and the establishment of the church, which is a continuization of God's people. And so we have the story of God's people from the beginning, all going all the way through the Old Testament and then into the New Testament. And it's continuing on with the new covenant, which is, I think, very important to see. Um, a few important things to think about leadership is that Jesus Christ himself established the first leaders of the church. He saw an importance to have leadership set up within the church, that he did not want disorder, he did not want chaos, but he wanted unity. And I think it's important also to state that Christ is the head of the church. In scriptures we see that he is the head. He is the one in supreme control. So he is the one that can truly establish the first leaders. Uh, We see this in the apostles, the 12 that followed him. Not only that, if you look at Luke chapter 10, there's the 72 that were sent out by twos. And so you have people that were being taught by Jesus, that were following Jesus, that were being discipled by Jesus and being trained up for the purpose of being the first leaders of the church, for, for the purpose of carrying his message throughout the entire world. And not only did he teach and train them, but he told them and instructed them to remain in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit was poured out. And so Jesus thought it really important to have taught and trained leaders that were empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so when we talk about the beginning of the church, we talk about the situation that was going on, we had people that were taught and trained by Jesus Christ himself. And I think that is, again, very, very important. Now, saying that, I don't want to say those leaders were perfect, or that they had everything in line, or they completely understood everything. Because at the same time, there's an establishment of a new covenant. And so... They're trying to transition, okay, what's this look like? Okay, what part of our of ethnic Judaism is still important? What part is not important? What part was the old covenant? What part does not transition in? So there's all these different decisions taking place. Also, the Gentiles are coming into the church. What does that look like? What is required of them? Should they be circumcised? Should they not be circumcised? So you have this idea, or you have this situation where they have a history, they have an understanding, they've been taught by Jesus They're guided by the Holy Spirit, but there's still a lot of things to figure out. But I think the the beautiful thing is, again, the emphasis on the Holy Spirit guiding them through this process. And a good example of this and the church leaders coming together to make a decision would be the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. This council was brought together in Jerusalem as the leaders of the church. There's apostles. Uh, multiple other leaders. Uh, Paul himself was there at that time. Um, and they're discussing what was required of the Gentiles. Again, going back to where they're supposed to be circumcised, are, are kosher laws, etc. Are they supposed to follow all these things? And so you have this group of leaders meeting together to make a decision. And then, based, and then on their decision, Paul travels throughout the entire Roman Empire sharing the results to that. 
And so right off the bat, you see leaders coming together, making a decision that impacts the entire church. So there is a unity that's taking place. Even though church is a popping up all over the Roman Empire, you have situations where people are hearing the gospel, but there's still a unity that's taking place between all the churches. And I think it's important, too, to realize that Pentecost, the moment when the Holy Spirit was poured out, and we have Peter delivering that big message where thousands of people give their life to the Lord. Pentecost was a Jewish holiday where people traveled. Jews from all over the Roman Empire traveled back to Jerusalem. So you have Jews that are living all over the empire hearing the message of Christ and accepting the message of Christ and then returning back home. So you have to realize the message of Christ instantly went out to all over the Roman Empire. And so, I mean, you see Paul traveling. He is taking the message to the Gentiles. He is, take, he is interacting with people at the synagogues. He is bringing the message to people that have not heard it, but he's also bringing the message to people that have heard it, make sure they understand it completely, and also bringing structure to that. And so we can see the importance of leadership was vital, and there, there was unity within that church. And then continuing on from there, you see how Paul continues on with the importance of leadership when he talks about deacons, bishops, overseers, and so forth. You have all these different names. Um, they're... They, they are different titles. They are different leadership uh, positions. But some are interchangeable. But my goal today is not to dissect that, but realize to emphasize the importance that there was for leadership within the church. And some of those reasons are because of the heresies that were going on that we'll look into a little later and because of the persecution. And the, and the importance of keeping people unified and keeping the church body unified as a whole and making sure that the church in Antioch was way off on a different doctrine than the church in Jerusalem and, and so forth and across the entire Roman Empire. And so I think we can see the importance that Jesus placed on leadership, establishing the leaders, and then from there you see different qualifications and, and the importance written by Paul for leaders throughout the church. And you also can see that unity that's taking place there. You guys still with me? So leadership was very important in early church. And that transitions all the way in today. You have leaders today within the church that it is important for the church to be in the position that they are in and that they are God-appointed. That just the apostles alone were not the only God-appointed leaders in the entire church history. Now, have leaders abused their power? Yes. Are there situations that they have been in the wrong? Yes. Am I saying all leaders are perfectly fine or everyone that says they're a leader is God appointed. I'm not stating all that. I'm just stating the importance that there was an importance of leadership from the beginning and it continued on throughout our history. And as we go through the studying church history, we'll see different leaders that stepped up at different times. And when Joe continues on next Sunday, we'll see that. Okay. I want to reference back now to the Jerusalem church. We talked about the leaders, and then a lot of the basic main leaders were based out of Jerusalem because that's where they were living. If you look at their skill, the next topic I have is community. And there's been a lot of different discussions, a lot of different opinions on community or communal living, having everything in common, what that looked like, what, what did the church actually do? Did they live in communes? Did they... Did everybody sell everything where they required to sell everything? What did that look like? And, and in relation to the rest of the churches, did everybody sell everything? Did everyone have the same kind of community the Jerusalem church had? Or was there different elements 
in different situations. And so before I actually get into this, I'm going to get your guys' brainstorming, get you guys thinking. So within your table, I would like for you guys to kind of discuss and kind of share your opinions and thoughts on what the church in Jerusalem looked like. What was that community? What was that communal, common living? What did that look like? And so, I'll kind of free you guys to kind of discuss that. Okay, as you, as you see in your skillet, we see two passages, Acts 2, and then one, another one in Acts 4. We will take a look into that. But I do want to talk a little bit about community and having things in common uh, in history prior to the New Testament times. Because we have to realize that the idea of Having things in common, supporting each other, helping each other out, in that essence was not a new thing during that time. I mean, you can look all the way back to the ancient families of that time. A lot of times people worked and had the same trade, where fathers, sons, grandparents, cousins, and so forth, a lot of them worked within the same trade. And the money brought in from working within that same trade, trade often went into a, a common purse. And from that common purse, which a common fund of money, that family lived out of. So there, right there is this idea of common living, supporting each other, and kind of having things in common. In addition to that, the Essenes, the ones known for the Dead Sea Scrolls, the time leading up to Jesus, but before his time, were a community that was very strict on their communal living and giving up everything they had. So, and they truly believed that they were the people from which God was going to rescue his people out of. Um, in addition to that, you also have the 12 disciples and Jesus. Those that traveled around with Jesus, they actually had a common purse. If you look into Luke 8, where people gave money into a fund that they used. So they shared money. And so this idea of helping sharing was already established before the church began. And so with that said, let's go straight into Acts 2 verses 42 through 47. I'm going to read through this and then we're going to dissect it a little bit. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. Okay, first thing I want to point out is right off the bat, dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching. So we already talked about the leadership that was established, the role that the apostles had. And you see right away that the community of believers dedicate themselves to apostles' teaching, that they look to the apostles and look to their teaching, which I think is very important to remember in the midst of all this. Uh, next, they had things in common. You see people selling possessions and belongings. And we'll get into this a little later in, in Acts 4, but the question arises, okay, what were they selling? Were they actually selling everything, and were they required to sell what they were selling? And I would say in this passage alone, you do not see a requirement, but you see a people, a community that's seeing the need and responding based on that need, and then they are selling their stuff for the needy and to help each other. So there's no commandment here. 
where they are required to sell. But they're seeing a need. And out of the love that they're called to do, and the love they have for each other, they're responding this way. And lean on to that. Next, you see also that they are still meeting in the temple daily. We talked about earlier how the first Christians were Jews. I mean, these people are still Jews. They're still, they didn't abandon every Jewish custom, everything that they've been a part of their entire way. They were still going to the temple. They were still going to the temple and worship. And in addition to that, they're saying they're meeting in their homes daily. Um, I think the key word there is homes with the S. Uh, some translations will say various homes. And so you have this community of people that are meeting together on a regular basis, a daily basis, where they're going into the temple. And also they're meeting in their homes breaking bread. And so this is not a, a picture that is, the picture that is presented right here is a community that is sticking together. They're a tight-knit group where they are interacting with each other daily. It doesn't express that they all lived in the exact same location. But they met up, met in each other's homes. They brought each other, each other into each other's homes and broke bread and fellowship together, which I think is really, really important to understand at that moment. Um, and also, you, you see this picture where it wasn't just one time a week that they were meeting, but it was, it was a daily, daily occurrence. Actually, it's not till later into Acts 20, verse 7, you can write it down, where it says they started to meet on the first day of the week. And so, going from Acts 2 all the way to Acts 20, you see them talking about meeting daily, but then it's Acts 20 where, I, where it talks about they're actually meeting the first day of the week, which we meet first day of the week, which is a Sunday. And so it goes all the way back to Acts 20, why the church meets on the first day of the week, which is to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ's resurrection emphasizes on what day of the week the church meets on. So if you're kind of curious, how in the heck did... They start meeting then as for the pure purpose of celebrating his resurrection. And at those meetings, and when they broke bread together, and and when they changed to the point where they were meeting the first time of the week, when they were breaking bread, they were celebrating communion. I think the important aspect to understand within early church history, communion was the highest form of worship for them. And so when they're meeting on a daily basis, as it says in the beginning, or whether they're meeting later on just one time a week, when they were breaking bread, they're having communion. Communion was an entire meal. It was their opportunity to fellowship and in a joyous occasion, it says in Acts 2, that they were doing this in. It wasn't focused on Jesus' death, but there is focus on the joy of his resurrection. It's focused on the life that was there in Jesus. And I think that's a really cool element that you see is the highest form of worship within the early church was communion, was fellowshipping around a meal together and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think one reason, too, it continued on as a meal. Later on in church history, it kind of turns into just bread and wine. But another reason why it was still a meal, and the reason why it was a meal in the first place, is because of the Jewish background. Because you have the Passover meal that's celebrating the, the life that they had, where, where death passed over them while being in Egypt. And they celebrated how death passed over them and the life that they had, and how that continues into communion and the Lord's Supper. is this celebration, this joyous occasion where death has passed over, that now they have life in Jesus Christ and celebrating his life and the resurrection. And so that was the highest form of worship during that time. Um, also another form of worship during that time, we'll get back to the communal aspect, but I want to stick with this worship aspect, was baptism. Bas- baptism 
was the other main form of worship during the early church. And even into today, if you look at it within our church today, you see uh, communion and baptism are two elements of our worship today. But within the early church, often you had to be baptized before you could take part in communion because baptism was viewed as an outward acceptance of Jesus Christ, that yet you are embracing the community. Um, also within baptism, it was very significant because it was, it was new life that was represented in that baptism. They actually, <laughs> they don't do it today, which I think is a very good thing, but they actually separated men and women in early baptism. This is just a fun fact. Men and women were separated because they were baptized naked. And then after they came out of their baptism, they were given a white robe that symbolizes how they were cleansed. And then they were given a glass of water to signify the cleansing that took place on the inside. And so it was, it was a big form of active worship, but it was, it was separated for good reason when it first started. And so um, also the early baptism was done in living water, was considered basically moving water and immersion. But there were people baptized, uh, not being immersed, but being poured over water if water was scarce. So you do see that early on if water was scarce. Okay, now that we sidetracked, a little bit talking about Christian worship and elements of that. Let's get back to the communal aspect of living that we see in uh, the Jerusalem church. And so, and continuing on with that, we're going to jump right into Acts 4, verse 32 through 37. I'll go ahead and read that. All the believers were in the heart, in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions were his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and much grace was upon them all. There was no needy person among them. For, for, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, <clears throat> brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, and the apostles called Barnabas, sold a field he owned. And brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Again, we have this thing of having every, uh, that everyone had everything in common. I think, it's, it's, I think the neat thing to see in the aspect that everyone had everything in common and they didn't possess their possessions. They didn't hoard what they had. They weren't possessive of what they did own. They realized that this world that they lived in was temporary. They realized that what they had now wasn't going to be with them in the afterlife. And so that influenced their, their heart behind things also. Um, I think a beautiful thing is that there was no needy person there. Again, there's emphasis on how they saw a need and they responded to that need. That they, they sold things, they gave things up because people were in need and they didn't want anyone in need among them. And next, we have the, the, the part where people sold their land and houses. In Acts 2, it talks about possessions and belongings. And Acts 4 transitions into a greater gift of actually selling their lands and houses. And I read the NIV uh, version on this because I feel like it gives the best understanding. Because if you see, it says, For from time to time, those who own lands or houses sold them. I think the important thing is in understanding what was taking place there. There wasn't a commandment where... They had to sell, or they were required. If you're in the Christian community, you have to sell your house, you have to sell your lands, and bring us all the money. That is required. No. 
I think the beautiful thing is you see how giving and loving these people are and what they're doing. And the reason why I emphasize for from time to time is five times within those two verses, the Greek verb tense that is used is the imperfect. Now, there's a couple past tenses within the Greek language. One is the aorist tense where it is a past completed action. It is said, done, final. I gave a card to someone and it was done, final. The imperfect tense is a past action with a continuous aspect to it. And so what that means is when they were selling property, when they were selling houses, often you had people that had a lot of land. You had people that potentially had multiple houses. I mean, the example right after that is Barnabas, where it says he sold a plot of land. It doesn't say that he sold everything, but it says that he sold a plot or a field. Um, So we have this reality that they saw a need. And so from time to time, you'd have people selling houses, selling plots of land to fulfill a need. And it wasn't this, this one moment action where, okay, I'm a Christian, I'm selling everything, I'm re- living, moving into a commune, we're staying everyone, 50 people in one room, this is what we're doing. No, they saw a need and they responded. And that is the thing I keep saying over and over and I think is important to see within that early church is they weren't required to do what they were doing, but they did it because there was a need and out of love for each other. And so it's, it's, I think it's a beautiful picture that is seen right there. And I think another thing is there's teachings throughout the whole entire New Testament that emphasize this, that stresses this. I mean, if you look at Luke chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, you have this passage where, where John the Baptist is starting to prepare the way and the crowds are asking him, what shall we do? And it says, if you have two tunics, give one away. And, and then there's a passage, and it continues on to talk about tax collectors. And they're like, what do we do? It's like, you can still be a tax collector, but just don't take anything else. Don't take anything more than what you're supposed to. And then there's the soldiers. And it says, oh, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. And so there's this, I want to make sure we tie in the theme of the entire New Testament where there's this reality of like when you see a need, when, when you have food and someone doesn't have food, give food to them. You, when you have two tunics and someone does not have a tunic, give them a tunic. A tunic was an undergarment. And so in these, these situations, you have this, and you have this being performed in a beautiful way within the early church where they're selling things as big as a house, land, I mean, think about, just take a second. Think about Judaism. Think about the importance of land alone. The promised land. That when they were, taking all, when they were going all the way back to the beginning, taken out of Egypt into the promised land, that land was so special to them. So the idea of someone selling land within a Jewish culture is pretty phenomenal and pretty amazing within itself. And so right there, it puts an even a... a it puts... It puts an amazing emphasis on the love they had for each other and performing that, a need. Um, also, write these scriptures down. It'd be great if you guys wanted to look at these later. It was 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 through 12, and 1 Timothy 5, 8, which I would encourage reading the scriptures around those passages also. But in these, pa- in these passages, it talks about um, working with your hands and, and providing for your family and being dependent within yourself and not, not living a life of dependence on others. And so what's, what's taking place within the Jerusalem church isn't everyone selling everything, this idea of 
oh, I'm not responsible for providing for myself, or I'm not responsible for, for providing for my family. No, You're, they were still responsible to function within society, as we see even in Luke. And then if you tie in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians and 1 Timothy, where it talks about uh, providing for the members of your household and how important that is to the element of your faith is really to provide for your household. And so you add all those elements in and to what the Jerusalem church is doing, they are being active, they are giving, they are fulfilling a need and trying to help each other out. They have everything in common because they view what they own and possess as not their own. They're not possessive of what they have. And so I think it's a beautiful picture that's painted there. Now, is this picture painted in the entire New Testament? I think it is, but not to the drastic degree you see in Jerusalem church. Nowhere else do you really see people selling houses and land and so forth. Did that happen? Not for sure. You can't really say it did or didn't happen because it, it's not talked about. So I'm not going to be up here and say that for sure. Um, but within the Jerusalem church, you see this beautiful picture of giving. And so, what can we learn from this? What does this look like today? Because there's this idea of selling possessions. Extreme, there's an extreme group down in Manitou Springs that live together. They truly believe and have everything in common. They are to abandon everything else and live within the same home together. Is, is that the picture that's painted in the New Testament? Or not? And so I'm not up here to say, to down-talk anyone or down-talk a group, but I would say that picture is not painted here. What a picture is painted here is an amazing group of people seeing a need, being compelled by the love of Christ, being compelled by the Holy Spirit to give and not be possessive of what they have. And so what's that look like today? Maybe you see a need where someone has a car and you have a car that you don't necessarily need. Giving that car away would be, a, would say, a modern-day example of what was taking place in the early church in Jerusalem. Does that make sense? Did you guys talk about that kind of stuff? Yes? No? Maybe? I know there's different opinions on this topic out there. There, there definitely are. There's, there's even opinions that say that the Jerusalem church got themselves in a bad financial situation for give, selling land, selling property, which later in Corinthians you see in other passages where Paul actually takes up a, an offering for the Jerusalem church because they were in need. And so there's a lot of different opinions floating out there on this. But I think the most important thing is, again, is seeing the love that was expressed for each other and the lack of selfishness that is there. And so I, I encourage you in your time, take a look at Acts. Read through there. Look into the scriptures in Thessalonians and First Timothy and Luke that I said and, and really piece it all together. Realize there's a lot of teachings that were said prior to the beginning of the church while Jesus was here when he guided those leaders. And so another reason too though is you see the unity within the early church, the unity within the Jerusalem church especially is because of the position that they were in, they had to support each other. They had to be there for each other. Because the first Christians, again, were Jews. And so Christianity was not viewed as a separate religion. Christian, the Christians that were Jews did not view themselves as a separate religion, sorry, separate religion within Judaism. They saw it as a continuization, the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament, what God had foretold 
in the Old Testament. And then the Jews within that time didn't view them as a, a different religion. They viewed them as a heretical group within Judaism. They're like, this is heretical. This, Jesus was not the Messiah. They got this wrong. This is wrong. And so here, Christianity is viewed as a heretical group within Judaism. So they're receiving persecution from the Jews because they are blaspheming God. And this is blasphemy. I mean, this is like the worst thing you could possibly do. I mean, in, in all honesty, Judaism at that time, if some other person was worshiping some other random God, it didn't, it didn't affect them at all. But Christianity affected them because in their eyes, it was heretical and it was destroying, destroying their religion, destroying their relationship with God. And so as they're receiving persecution from the Jews within Jerusalem, they also received persecution from the Rome, Romans. And you can see the different persecution they dealt with and the need for each other. I mean, just looking at Acts 7, you see Stephen is killed. Uh, James, the brother of John, was killed by King Herod Agrippa. I forgot to write the scripture reference down, but I think it's around Acts 11. I think it's right in that area. Um, also in history, is recorded that James, the brother of Jesus, was killed in 62 AD. You have Paul and Peter that are believed to be martyred in Rome during the 60s. There's dispute on when that took place and what that actually looked like. Um, but it's believed that they were martyred in the 60s. And then it is in 64 AD when the first big overarching persecution of Christian takes place. It's, it's the fire in Rome that destroys part of Rome, and Nero is the emperor at that time. The thing I want to point out, and I think we'll see within uh, church history, within the persecution aspect of it, which we'll cover just briefly, just to set up a few points that will help Joe continue on, is that Nero was not out to persecute the Christians. He did not set a... Well, it's believed that he set the fire. But if say he did set the fire. He did not set the fire for the sole purpose to blame it on the Christians. He had to blame somebody. He needed to blame somebody. He needed a scapegoat. There was all this talk going around that he did it and this bad mouth of him. So he had to blame it on someone. And the Christian quarters where most of the Christians live within Rome was barely touched by the fire. And so they were really convenient and easy to choose as his scapegoat. And at that moment, there was quite a bit of persecution within Christianity. But even then, it was still more localized within Rome. Because we have to realize that there's different provinces within the Roman Empire where persecution was different throughout history. Just because people are experiencing persecution in some areas doesn't mean they're experiencing it in others. And so, yes, there was some going on in Jerusalem. There was some going on in Rome. And I'm sure there's some going on in other areas, but it's more concentrated in those areas early on within Christianity. Um, branching off of Nero, I'm going to go through a couple key moments within the first 250 years that will be good to know uh, within church history. You have Pliny the Younger, governor of Bithynia. It's basically modern-day Turkey. I believe it's the northern shore. Uh, wrote to the emperor Trajan to ask for his guidance on how to handle Christians. And this was early, early uh, in the second century. It's like 111-ish, right around that time. And so in Bithynia, there's this influx of Christians. There's so many Christians to the point where the pagan temples were almost emptied. And, and, he, and 
And Pliny the Younger is trying to figure out, how do I handle this situation? How do I handle all these Christians? How do I handle people converting to Christianity? So he writes the emperor to find out what he says. And this is how the emperor responds. He, he says that if they are, he basically sets up, if they are accused of being a Christian and they refuse to recant their Christianity, which means refuse, if they refuse to be Christian and to worship the emperor, worship the empire's gods, then they will be persecuted. And so, and at the same time, he also told them, do not seek out the Christians. And so here we have another element of persecution being expounded upon. But the Christians were not sought out at this moment. It's not like, seek out all the Christians and kill them. Kill them all. That was not what he said. He basically said, if people are accusing Christians, accused of being Christians, and they refuse to recant from being Christianity, from, from it, worshiping God, Jesus Christ, and only him, then they will be persecuted. And it, you see this throughout the entire, entire of church history where Christians weren't always sought out to be persecuted, but they are persecuted because they would not worship the gods of the empire. They are not a part of the community. They, they would not take part in Roman affairs. And so they were viewed as outcasts. And even getting into Marcus Aurelius, and he took power in 161, he started to order Christians to be persecuted because he blamed them for the troubles Rome was experiencing. Rome was experiencing multiple troubles during that time period, and he blamed them because they were not worshiping the ancient gods. Not because they were Christians, but because they were not worshiping the ancient gods, and the ancient gods were punishing Rome because, because of the Christians. And so they're like, great, we have to persecute, punish the Christians, tell them to recant because we are experiencing destruction because they are not worshiping the gods. And you see this theme throughout. You see this um, all the way into the beginning of the second century in 2000 or 2000, 202 AD. Um, Severus uh, was emperor during that time. And he was an emperor that was all about religious harmony. And so he, was, he, was, he saw it important that there's religious harmony in the entire empire. And as long as everyone worshipped the sun as the supreme god, then we're good. He was okay with syncretism, and syncretism was huge within the Roman Empire, which is basically accepting and merging different forms of worship together. It's like a hodgepodge of religions and forms of worship. And so they were okay with different forms of worship, but in the end, they wanted to make sure that everyone was united in some form or fashion, that they gave honor and worship to the empire. And, and in this situation in 2002, that the sun was a god that was worshipped above all. But within history, Christianity was like, no, we worship one god. And because they stayed strong, because they didn't bow down to other gods, they received persecution in which they were placed in a situation where they had to choose. Today, we don't have to choose. We don't have a situation where it's like, like bow down to the sun god or the moon god or else. Now, other places in the world, there are, there are those situations today where people cannot choose who they worship. And where Christians, if they do not recant their Christianity, they will be killed. So what's taking place then is still taking place today. And so... And then even moving into, I know this is a brief overview of a lot of history, 
Decius when he was emperor in 249 AD. Um, he, he viewed the Christians, their refusal to worship the ancient gods as treason. And so the main point I want to make about the persecution within early church history wasn't necessarily because people were Christians, but it was the fact and reality that they would not abandon their beliefs and their one God to worship other gods. And so you can say, yeah, they were persecuted because they were Christians. But then again, you could say they were not persecuted because they were Christians, but they were persecuted because they would not worship the other gods. And so they could say, oh yeah, you can worship your God as long as you worship this other God too. You can worship your God as long as this God is greater than your God. And also you see in church history too, situations where, oh yeah, you can worship your God, but make sure you pray for the purpose of the empire in Rome. But you also have to worship this other God. Oh, you can serve your God, but you must bow down and serve the emperor as if he is God. And so you see this very interesting situation that they were placed in, the church was placed in, where they had to make a stand and stand up for their beliefs. And that's why sometimes you see within church history, it's recorded as that they met before sunrise because it was an opportunity for them to meet in private without persecution because they had, they had to hide at different times. Now, was persecution heavy at all times throughout entire church history? No. No, there, there goes stints where 30 to 50 years, within the first 250 years, where persecution was not very high. There's pockets of it, but it was very minimal. A lot of times, civil wars and other things distracted different emperors to cater to those things than to deal with the Christians. But anytime it came back to an emperor that wanted to restore the glory of Rome or get back to the glory days where they wanted everyone to worship the same gods, that's when they got into the most trouble. They were placed in a situation, die, recant, or die. And so, reference back into the church leaders, I think it was important for Jesus to have leaders established and you see leadership, the importance of having strong leaders and the way Paul describes those leaders and being strong and having strong faith and strong doctrine because you look at all the persecution that they dealt with, they needed to be ready for it. Not only did they need to be ready for the persecution, they had to be ready for the different heresies that they dealt with. And this is what we'll end on. And so we see the importance of strong leadership. We see the importance of strong communities sticking together, looking out for each other that was expressed there. You, you see within early church history that people died for the faith, that they stood strong and they believed in it. And pretty much from the blood of martyrs, the church grew stronger because people saw real authentic faith that people were willing to die for. And then going into heresies, this is reality. You have, within the Roman Empire, syncretism, this, this merging, this hodgepodge where people would merge different religions together. And so you have to think within Christianity that there's going to be different groups that are going to try to bring in their ancient beliefs, they're bringing in their ancient ways of doing things, or merge this religion with this religion and, and, and kind of form their own unique Christianity. That took place. There's a couple specific instances where that took place, but I'm going to highlight just one heresy, which is the main one in early church history, is Gnosticism. Gnosticism was this belief that knowledge was the key to salvation, that, that our physical bodies, 
that matter itself, that things you could touch, the world, creation itself, was evil. And, and, and at best, if it wasn't evil, it wasn't real. Yeah, I, how do you process that? I don't know. They viewed it as not being real. Um, they viewed the body as being a prison to the spirit, and it was like through, this, through knowledge, your spirit could be set free from this prison that your spirit is living within. And the whole, the whole goal of salvation was to get through this obstacle of this world that we're in, this, this evil, not quite real world that our spirits are trapped in. And, and they did not believe in that God created everything, did not believe in incarnation, because you believe matter is not real. Or if you believe matter is evil, how could Jesus be incarnated? Jesus could not be in evil flesh. And also they did not believe in the resurrection. So that is one group that, especially throughout the first century and leading on, that was a big heretical group within Christianity. And so you have these groups that are emerging, these different beliefs and thoughts and situations that are going on. And so you have the church leaders, again, going back to as early as Acts 15 at Jerusalem Council where they were united. And so as even going into the first, uh, going to the second century, third century, and so forth, that they were still united in their doctrine. They were still communicating with each other across the board. And they saw in a very big importance to make sure that correct doctrine was out there. And so I think it is, and this, and, well, and this is where the creeds, and the councils, and the canonization of Scripture comes into role. As believe the Apostle Creed is believed that it went all the way back to the Apostles. Um, history alone, based on history, they are saying more. It was developed in Rome in maybe 150 AD. Um, it's a nice thought to, to think the Apostles actually put together, but more likely it was developed in 150 AD, but it was, it was a, a symbol of faith. It was, it was a stance. It was, summer, it was a summary of of Christian doctrine because of situations like Gnosticism and a guy named Marcion who, who had his own different kind of heretical group. It was to combat these different heresies and make sure people were united and that the church did not split and take off because accountability was important. And that's why even today within church and being a part of a church is being a part of a, a church that, is a, that you're accountable to, that, that, you, that you keep correct and solid doctrine. And it's, it's good to be a part of a church that's also connected to other churches. You don't want to be a part of a church that stands alone, has no accountability outside of their walls. Because it's important to have churches that are linked, united together. And I know there's different views, there's different concepts out there. There's different churches all across Colorado Springs that have different ideas on things. But you can get every pastor within the churches in this area. They can agree on the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. They can stand together on the basic fundamental doctrines of Christianity. And that's what was important for early church leaders, the church fathers, uh, which are the apologists and teachers that came during the first and second century and so forth, that they, that they stayed strong, that they kept the church unified, and that they, they combated these different heresies, and that people had the right doctrine, and that people were dying for the right doctrine. And so, as we take a look... They threw that all out at you of some key components to the first 250 years. I think in summary, we see the importance of leadership from the get-go. We see in 
an aspect of communal living, having things in common, giving, a very giving community within the Jerusalem church, which also stemmed into other churches where people were very giving. People were, were instructed not to be selfish. I mean, if you look in like 2 Corinthians 9, I believe there's passages where it talks about giving and being generous. All throughout the scripture it talks about being generous and so forth. And then we see that the strength of the community, the strength of the leaders helped the church get through all the persecution that they experienced, helped them stay strong to combat the different heresies. And they developed different creeds. And through conversation, they, they, had, they had the idea of what, script, what books of the Bible were part of the Bible, what, what, what were legit books. It wasn't just one individual that decided everything. No one individual decided anything. Um, I don't know if Joe will get into the Pope or anything of that situation, but that wasn't until several centuries later where the name Pope and one person in authority came into power. And a lot of people view, I'll leave this just for fun. A lot of people, you know, the keys to the kingdom given to Peter. I almost didn't want to open this can of worms, so I'm going to go ahead and say it. And this idea that he was the first Pope and so forth. The interesting thing is you look at the Jerusalem Council, in Acts 15, where all the leaders were together, which Peter was there, James, the brother of Jesus, had the final word, not Peter. And so I think there's a picture there that the, the, the leadership was unified. It wasn't just one individual that everything relied on. But church was built on solid foundation of leaders appointed by Jesus Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So I hope you guys have a great week. Let me pray. And have a good Valentine's Day. Heavenly Father, Lord God, I thank you for this opportunity that we can discuss some different key elements to the beginning of the church and how we can learn and apply it to our life today and take what that looks and, and to see what that looks like. Lord God, I ask you to be with the people here today. Let them have a great week. Let them have a, a great Valentine's Day. Let the guys that have not planned anything get really creative within the next few hours. You'll have something special tomorrow. And Lord God, we are, it is a glorious, glorious thing to be able to worship you to serve you, and to learn about you. And so continue to guide us in all our studies and and guide us in our relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.